millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction. This week, we're going to be talking about something a little bit off topic. Uh, Our subject this week is going to be conspiratorial thought and the 2020 US presidential election. So obviously, based on that, um, I should issue a warning at the beginning. This is going to contain opinions and some politics. If you don't want to hear anything, any takes hot or chilled or otherwise about US politics or the state of the world in 2020, and to be honest, in either case, I really can't blame you at all, then please switch off now and wait for normal programming to resume, as it will shortly. Unfortunately, I asked my Twitter followers whether they would appreciate some more off-topic content or a different off-topic podcast where I could put all of these thoughts, and they said that I should just release the occasional off-topic episode. So this is really a sort of bonus addition to the sort of thing we normally do. Again, much like the coronavirus episodes, a lot of this is just about me self-indulgently getting various things out of my head that would be rattling around in there otherwise. And you know, hopefully maybe starting a discussion with some of you if this interests you as well, so that we can, uh, so that I can basically better understand what's going on in the world today, which I think is an important thing. And I think the best way to do that is through dialogue and being detailed in the topics that you discuss. So uh, without further ado, let's talk about this. Something that's become increasingly unavoidable as a part of discussion in these times of COVID-19 is conspiracy theories and conspiratorial thought. This is something I think I spend a bit too much time thinking about, given our culture's fascination with these things, given the lurid spectacle of conspiratorial belief, and given what I describe as the unknown level of impact that these beliefs have on our society, it does tend to take up a disproportionate amount of headspace compared to how reasonable these claims often are. Now, whenever I talk about stuff that's outside my wheelhouse, I always have to preface it with an apology. One thing that studying in academia has really taught me is that a great many of the more obvious thoughts you can have have already been thunk by somebody else. When an amateur or a layperson comes into a new field and says, hey, here's an idea, maybe this is something to think about. 99 times out of 100, this new idea is either something incredibly well-known and well-studied, or it simply doesn't work out for some quite basic reasons. This is not to insult people, I think it's just a consequence of having 7 billion people on the planet, many of whom can specialise in sub-areas of sub-disciplines of thought. Chances are someone's come up with it already, so I will apologise if I'm mangling concepts that are already familiar to a lot of you out there. But the reason why I find myself fascinated by a lot of this conspiratorial thought that is going on at the moment is that we are all, as humans, subject to a kind of cognitive bias. And that is a cognitive bias, essentially, of being biased towards assuming that everyone else around us is living in the same kind of world that we are. This is quite an unconscious thing. People are seldom consciously making this decision. But nevertheless, unconsciously, we assume that we are living in a shared reality. And this means that we live with a shared landscape. Shared moral ideas, for example. A shared basic understanding of how the world works a good degree of shared knowledge, and shared ways of getting that knowledge. A shared world philosophy, if you like. I think we are implicitly, even if it's only slightly, biased towards assuming that people are, basically, like us, that they might see the world through our eyes. There may be points of difference, perhaps you know something that I don't, perhaps your perspective is informed by different priorities, but on the basics, you might expect us to agree. Plenty has been written about how, nowadays, online algorithms that are designed to serve up the content you'll find most engaging absolutely reinforce this perception of how people behave. There are, of course, plenty of filter bubbles that existed before the internet. The newspapers you chose to read, the TV channels you watched, the people you hung out with, who may be of your generation or class or race predominantly. School, work, geographic location... These things always filtered us and tended to mean that we mixed with people who are more likely than not to be like-minded. 
so quite often you can get this subconscious bias reaffirmed. Yes, all my friends seem to think in a similar way and seem to have similar ideas, and so it must be that we are all actually sharing one landscape, culturally, morally, intellectually, whatever you want to say, and the differences between us are not necessarily that large. Of course, this isn't true. And the extent to which it isn't true lies behind so many of our worst miscommunications. It's a bit like mathematics. Mathematics, you have this formal system of logic based on sets of things that have to be true for the whole system to work, that you call axioms. The axioms are the things that you assume are self-evidently true, and then you work from the basis of these axioms and the rules that link them to construct other arguments, other ideas, or other leaps of logic. But when we have the kind of miscommunication that I'm talking about, it's almost as if the axioms that we're using are different. At this point, it can feel pretty hopeless to communicate with people. It's not a case that someone is telling you that 6 times 7 is 41. If that's the case, then you can go in, explain the error in thinking, add some more logic and thought to the conversation, and reach agreement. But instead, it's like they're telling you that 6 times 7 is a drawing of the Taj Mahal. How are you going to reconcile that? The axioms don't even link together and make sense. And that's the thing that's a little distressing about this, is that we have to share society with everyone. You can't just limit it to people who share your axioms. It's important in so many ways, though, that everyone is on at least a similar page. Take the whole nonsense about 5G and the coronavirus. This conspiracy theory is literally a threat to public health because it makes people less likely to comply with rules that are designed to stop them from spreading the virus. It makes them less likely to trust medical and healthcare authorities if they're sick. It makes them less likely to become vaccinated when the vaccines are available for this virus. And that's damaging everyone. Conspiracy theories surrounding climate science have muddied the waters and muddied the politics to help prevent meaningful action for many decades. Whatever you think of Hillary Clinton and whether or not she would have been a good president, the fact that a non-zero proportion of voters went into the booth believing that she was at the head of a Satanist cult that tortured children in 2016 has obviously had some impact that's non-zero on society and the world more broadly. The original satanic panic in the 1980s and 1990s, where at least thousands of Americans believed that satanic ritual abuse of children was happening in preschools throughout the country, based on incredibly flimsy evidence, I should add, also had a massive, tangible impact on society. Children were traumatised by being subjected to lengthy and often leading police questioning. Seven people were put on trial, accused of some of the most heinous crimes you can imagine, a trial that lasted seven years and was the most expensive case in US criminal history and led to no convictions. A colossal amount of effort was devoted to discussing and prosecuting a massive hoax, with serious damage for everyone involved. Of course, conspiracy theories can often promote racism and discrimination. Many of the most popular conspiracy theories throughout history have either been explicitly anti-Semitic, or they have encoded anti-Semitism in some way. I also think the presence and the credence that is given to conspiracy theories can even ruin the lives of the individuals who believe in them. Take, for example, people with certain kinds of paranoid schizophrenia or other mental issues which involve delusional thinking. If you're able to go online and expose yourself to countless hours of people talking about secret cabals that run the world or harass their opponents with targeted stalking and directed energy weapons or whatever... Believe me, there are many countless people you can find online who are trapped in these harmful belief systems. You're having the paranoia and suspicion that comes with your condition validated, and that's going to prevent you from getting any help that you might actually need to get your life back on track. The popular QAnon conspiracy, which is mostly what we're going to be talking about in this episode, has ruined a lot of families. The QAnon Casualties subforum on Reddit, dedicated to people who are trying to help their relatives out of this conspiratorial mindset, has 17,000 members. And how many more people are struggling to deal with friends and relatives who are suddenly operating from totally different sets of axioms? More than this 
I feel that when conspiracy theories don't actually impede or direct how people behave in ways that directly influence other people, there's still a whole plethora of indirect effects. I think a lot of conspiracy belief comes from a sense that there's something wrong, something unexplained, unjust, or unfair in society, and it gets misdirected or redirected into nonsense rather than genuinely and constructively questioning the way things are, the systems that exist around us, and how they might be influenced and changed for the better. At other times, it can promote an immense sense of nihilism and disengagement. What's the point of any sort of activity when shadowy forces are secretly controlling everything around you? So there's this rather disturbing process of running around not knowing whether the person you're talking to is actually living in a shared reality with you, if they come to their beliefs in the same way, and if they have the same moral standards and concerns as you do. If you want to persuade people to act with you towards some common goal, how can you do that when you're speaking completely different languages, using different axioms for the basis of what is true? Conspiracy theories are in many ways the ne plus ultra of this fact. The nature of conspiracy theories is generally not only that you simply aren't working from the same evidence base and the same set of shared acknowledged facts, but also that any way you have that disproves the conspiracy theory makes you part of the conspiracy theory, and therefore how can you possibly agree about the conclusions? If you present some counter-evidence, even if the person is willing to engage with that evidence and doesn't have some preset counter-argument, the conspiracy theorists will say that it's fabricated, falsified, or simply doesn't matter. Often you get classic fallacies like the burden of proof fallacy, where conspiracy theorists will simply say, well, you must believe everything you're told, where's the evidence for your point of view? As if every point of view is equivalent, regardless of how outlandish, ill-defined, or illogical it may be and whether or not it's asserted with any evidence to back it up. It can often feel like there's no sense in even having the discussion, because the nature of many conspiracy theories robs you of any shared axioms that you can start from to have that discussion in the first place. The basis for the belief is the rejection of any evidence you can provide against the belief, and so where can you go from there? So I really have no interest in debunking individual conspiracy theories here, but instead I want to think about how some of them are structured, about why people believe in them, and I'm going to do a lot of this with reference to the QAnon conspiracy theory, which is one I've followed for a while, and which has really taken on the dimensions of a quasi-religious faith at this point, and which I think is probably the most influential conspiracy theory on politics, at least in the US. Now, for those that still don't know, and count yourselves lucky, the actual tenets of what this conspiracy theory is claiming have become increasingly difficult to pin down. If you ask people who follow it what they actually believe, they will more often than not tell you to do your own research rather than actively making any specific and falsifiable claims or predictions. This is a good way of keeping the movement cohesive, given that most of the people involved in it can't actually agree on the core precepts of their own theory. In other words, it's quite unlike now some of the very elaborate narratives that were attached to previous conspiracy theories, where people are required to believe a whole heap of specific interpretations about historical events, such as, for example, the idea that a second assassin was present to kill JFK, or that the World Trade Towers were destroyed by thermite rather than planes. But broadly speaking, the following is more or less true. There is a poster on a series of anonymous online message boards who claims to be someone who has a security clearance in the US government. In their first ever post, which was about three years ago, they predicted that Hillary Clinton and her campaign manager were about to be imminently arrested. Three years later, this obviously hasn't happened, but the conspiracy has now evolved into a very elaborate series of cryptic anonymous posts. They hint at things like the former Pizzagate conspiracy theory, that the world is secretly controlled by a cabal of satanic paedophiles who abduct children, which is supposedly evidenced by leaked Hillary Clinton emails that make reference to ordering pizzas. The idea is that Trump, along with QAnon, are secretly working to dislodge the satanic cabal that secretly runs the world 
and that some event is going to come called the Great Awakening or the Storm when all of this is going to happen. And basically any uh, ongoing political or historical event is interpreted through the lens of this narrative. As you can see, with a theory like this, it's pretty clear why no one wants to make any specific claims about what's going on, because it's bizarre and easily falsifiable. Current events are always brought into the theory or interpreted through the lens of the theory, so the poster QAnon and the adherents of this digital prophet will try and interpret and come up with their own explanations for things like, say, Trump firing his cabinet members, the deaths of celebrities, elections, investigations into the government, and of course global events like the coronavirus pandemic. Much like Nostradamus, the posts that are made by this anonymous poster are usually very cryptic and open to interpretation. Much like Nostradamus, there's a large enough volume of material that is cryptic and vague enough that it is easy to link to world events to specific lines of text. So, for example, Nostradamus, one of his most famous passages was, quote, The blood of the just will be demanded at London, burnt by lightning fire in 23 the sixes. The ancient lady will fall from her high place, and many of the same sect will be killed. So this is obviously a prophecy of something, right? Can you guess what it is? Well, if you were going to be a Nostradamus interpreter, you would know that, of course, this is a prediction of the Great Fire of London, because we have the words London and fire and sixes all pretty close together. And that fire happened in 1666. Never mind that no lady fell from a high place, or that many of a same sect were not killed, or what the blood of the just means and whether it was demanded, or indeed that there are thousands upon thousands of lines that can be interpreted this loosely as linking to given historical events. This is the kind of thing that passes for a really robust prediction. Obviously, all of the lines that have no clear links to any historical event are ignored. Similar things happen in the case of QAnon, where vague pronouncements are linked with historical events, or just imagined historical events, on very little basis, and any false prediction is simply ignored. Now, part of the reason that people are motivated to keep this thing going is that many individuals are making money by selling these interpretations or describing these proofs to their followers, so as ever there's always an element of grifting people who have already demonstrated themselves to be vulnerable and gullible here. Now, a few years ago, the Q people used to get more excited about specific dates when some grand revelation was promised to happen. For example, the State of the Union speech one year, or repeated references to a week to remember, or something similar to that. Obviously, nothing on the scale of what was supposed to happen was actually ever occurring, and the exact nature of what was supposed to happen remained unclear, but nothing in particular ever actually transpired. In this, I'm reminded of a couple of historical conspiracy theories that just go to show how the form of so many of these conspiratorial beliefs can remain the same, even as the context and content changes with our culture and with our historical times. When the Bible first began to be translated into languages other than Latin, there was a series of religious movements that arose from people who were now able to interpret their own holy book for the first time. This led to a great many Protestant religious movements, including the Anabaptists in Europe. When Anabaptists took over the German city of Munster, there was a protracted siege, where the Anabaptists were basically besieged by the former leadership of the city. As the siege progressed, the apocalyptic predictions by one of the Anabaptist leaders, Jan van Leiden, became more and more elaborate. So, for example, to explain why he was caught in bed with a local scullery maid, van Leiden pointed to passages in the Bible that encouraged polygamy, and explained he was under divine orders to make everyone polygamous. Van Leiden predicted particular dates when the divine salvation would come for the Anabaptists in Munster. When those dates arrived, nothing seemed to have happened. The siege and the gradual starvation of the population continued. But Van Leiden told them that they had misunderstood his prophecies, and that, in actual fact, he had been telling them that they would be spiritually saved rather than physically saved. 
So you see, my prediction didn't really fail, it's just that it meant something different and, of course, completely unfalsifiable as opposed to what you thought it meant. Sorry about that. Clearly, there are strong relationships between this type of attitude and the approach of QAnon. Whenever inconvenient truths about the world arise, a pandemic that's poorly handled by the Trump administration, a failure of anticipated arrests to arise, a defeat in the midterm elections, followers root through the clues left by Q to explain away these facts as all being part of the plan. And of course, many of the strands of the conspiracy theory involve the idea that things that were predicted to have happened have in fact already happened in secret and will be revealed later on. In the early days of the conspiracy theory, when the arrests failed to materialise, many conspiracy theorists looked for evidence that the people concerned were under house arrest or wearing ankle monitors. And this is of course totally analogous to Van Leiden telling people that they had in fact been spiritually saved, when the peril of their situation was still very much apparent to them. This type of confabulation is myth-making in its purest form, because the myth arises to help you deal with what would otherwise be cognitively distressing facts. Those under siege in Munster had to reconcile the idea that they were chosen by God, that they had the only accurate interpretation of the Bible, and that they would surely be saved, with the increasing desperation of their situation. For example, one of the earlier prophets in Munster was a guy called Jan Matthias. Jan Matthias seemed to be a true believer that he had a direct line with God and was able to communicate with God. And he rode out to battle one day, um, straight into the army of people who was besieging Munster and attempted to defeat them single-handedly because he'd had a vision or a prophecy that he would be able to do that. And as it transpired, a couple of his bodyguards uh, insisted on going with him. And naturally, given that this was just six guys versus a huge besieging army, they were cut down and killed. And you have this cognitively distressing fact, if you're a true believer of the Anabaptists, that your prophet, Jan Matthias, has said that God has told him that he's going to succeed and lift the siege, and he's just been killed in front of you. That's cognitively distressing. But the next prophet, Jan van Leiden, came along and said, oh, it was because he took his bodyguards with him. He wasn't supposed to do that. He was supposed to go solo. He defied God's will, and therefore we can reconcile the evidence of our eyes, the reality that confronts us, with the way that we would like to believe the world is. And... If this sounds like a ridiculous level of moral and intellectual contortion, I think we all need to be a little bit introspective on this point and realise that there are plenty of times when we have, in our own personal lives, regardless of how rational we think we are, when we have tried to confabulate explanations or evidence or theories that explain how something that we believed to be the case um, could actually remain true even if it didn't seem to be true based on our evidence you know that we all have this tendency to try and reconcile any cognitive dissonance that shows up when our beliefs are conflicting with reality and of course later on when van leiden in munster was sleeping with scullery maids and so on they had to reconcile the idea that Van Leiden was virtuous, holy, their saviour who was communicating with God with the scandals surrounding his personal life. And so QAnon, of course, operates in a similar way for some of the more fanatical supporters of Trump. For some people, perhaps they bought into earlier conspiracy theories and thought that he would make good on his specific promises to lock up Hillary Clinton and other people that they are convinced are involved in heinous crimes. Others maybe just expected an improvement in their quality of life or simply a good leadership that they don't feel has materialised yet. The fact that you voted in the election, your preferred candidate won and promised to make everything better, and maybe things haven't improved as much as you hoped they would, or certain individuals who you thought would be punished have not been punished, this gives you a mismatch between expectations and reality, and that has obviously for some people given rise to some cognitive dissonance. But you can address that by framing it as part of this narrative where there's this big shadow battle between Trump and QAnon who are working together 
against these shadowy forces that secretly control the world. The reason, then, that things aren't better yet is because the day of revelation, the day of reckoning, or the awakening, hasn't arisen yet. But rest assured that it must be coming, and that's how you address the cognitive dissonance. This is, of course, similar to how many authoritarian regimes retain their support in spite of counter-evidence. Take the Soviets, endlessly denouncing wreckers, saboteurs, imperialist spies, and so on. On one level, it gave Stalin an excuse for murdering his own political opponents. On another level, it explained to true believers why utopia hadn't arisen yet, and why their conditions for labour might remain bad or even get worse. It's the fault of the saboteurs. Take Hitler. I mean, he had theories that the alien race should be superior to all of the others. Why then did Germany lose the First World War? The answer again is the narrative of a shadowy group of saboteurs, in his case Jewish people, stabbing Germany in the back. This rhetorical device is everywhere in politics and has often been used to justify heinous acts of political and racist violence throughout history. Of course, when we talk about this method of uh, achieving cognitive dissonance and explaining why things haven't gotten better yet, this, this does bear a lot of relation to something else that we talked about with respect to the end times in the episode The Psychology of the End of the World, which you will remember first came out a few years ago. We repeated it a bit later on um, because things got a little too apocalyptic not to. And the concept of millennialism as an aspect of thought. And again, this isn't anything to do with the generation millennials. It's millennialism as in the millennium in uh, eschatological thought. And again, you have this nice, broad-brush, simplistic narrative. Things may be bad now, but some massive, destructive event is coming, after which all of the evil will be defeated and the forces of good will triumph. For some people, this is a global revolution. For others, it's the rapture. And, of course, there is a lot of crossover between fundamentalist Christian eschatology and QAnon, who regularly cites Bible verses almost at random to encourage this. For others, it might be ecological or environmental breakdown that will cause this big apocalyptic event after which things will be better. I'm picking on QAnon here as an extremist fringe of Trump supporters, but we should bear in mind that, to perhaps a slightly less deranged extent, there are similar narratives that are pervasive at the fringes of things that I talk about. There was a fringe of conspiracy theorists who were very active when the special counsel investigation was going on, there were online accounts, like Louise Mensch and others, making wild proclamations about secret arrests or indictments. I mean, she even claimed that Steve Bannon had been given the death penalty, which obviously didn't happen. Although, as I read this out today, he has been arrested for fraud. It's not quite the death penalty, though, is it, Louise? Beyond a mirror image on the other side of US politics, there are, you know, there's millennialist narratives in the field of climate change. In terms of technology and artificial intelligence... There's people who think the singularity is coming at some point soon, transhumanists who are waiting, staring at exponential graphs to be uploaded to the cloud. The point is that this narrative that there's going to be some disruptive apocalyptic transformation which will fix the world is ingrained, I think, in a lot of people's psyches for one reason or another. It appeals to our sense of drama, and it allows us to explain away, justify, or stop worrying about any bad events that we see around us which can be negated by our faith that things will all work out okay. And to a certain extent, the way that this is framed justifies inaction. After all, imagine for a second that you did genuinely believe that a cult of satanic paedophiles were secretly in control of the world. You might feel inclined to act on that fact. This is in fact the one thing that always gets me about people who apparently believe conspiracy theories or even extremist religious beliefs as well. If you do believe this, then how are you able to think about or concentrate on anything else? Surely it trumps whatever other concerns there might be in your day-to-day -day life. Surely acting on it immediately becomes your moral imperative. In that sense, the conspiracy theorists who run around with placards yelling about the end of the world are at least acting rationally once you have those beliefs in place. But of course, the thing that happens here is you can't underestimate the ability of people to totally compartmentalise things that they apparently believe or at the very least will say that they believe when prompted, and what might appear to be the necessary consequences of those beliefs. There was a famous public policy polling survey which suggested that 15% of respondents believed that the government added mind-controlling technology to TV broadcasts. I wonder how many of them actually owned TVs. Now, interestingly, you know, I, I, we talk about this, this is a famous result. 
if you ask people leading questions, you'll always get like 5 to 10% of people who will say, yeah, I believe in that. But I think it's interesting as to why those 15% of people said that the government adds mind-controlling technology to TV broadcasts. I mean, we know that no such technology actually exists. So why would so many people, millions of people, if this was borne out across a survey of the whole country, why would so many people believe that's true? Well, I think it comes back to this idea of truthiness, the idea that some things, well, they might not necessarily be true, but mm, I don't know. I mean, we know that the media influences us and maybe it brainwashes us. And if if that's the case, and if people are being influenced by the media uh, to support the government, then maybe it is through mind-controlling technology. You know, It has the ring of truth to it, even if you don't actually believe in the specific proposition. And it reminds me, going back to US politics again, that uh, US presidential candidate Ted Cruz there was a significant number of people who believed when asked in polls that he was the Zodiac Killer. The Zodiac Killer being a serial killer who was never caught, who used to leave cryptic ciphers uh, after their crimes. Obviously, Ted Cruz is not the Zodiac Killer. The dates don't work out. Ted Cruz would have been like four years old when the Zodiac murders happened. So why did so many people say that? Well, they haven't really evaluated it. They don't like Ted Cruz. They look at him. They think he's a bit creepy. Uh, and they decide, well, maybe he is a serial killer. You know, he certainly isn't a trustworthy guy. Um, and that that's about the level as it comes to with these beliefs. So you can't necessarily take this particular polling thing for, um, for granted. But I think this might explain to you how people can be drawn into QAnon, you know, because maybe they believe that mainstream democratic politicians are untrustworthy. And hey, there's some evidence for that. Um, some of them have been untrustworthy in the past. Um, you know, there are characters who are involved in corruption throughout politics on both sides of the aisle, I think. And this sense and this sort of sense of scandal and uh, and so on that is, that is, of course, encouraged by the mainstream elements of the media on the right wing, who are constantly unearthing scandals and so on about these people. This leads to a sort of general atmosphere of distrust, that people are hiding something... And then, of course, once you have that, it actually becomes a sort of general attitude of negativity towards these people. And you're sort of drifting towards being more and more susceptible to some of these quite ridiculous beliefs about these individuals that come out of this QAnon narrative. So if you've been conditioned for this sort of thing, then it has a truthiness to you. But in the case of QAnon, the narrative of the conspiracy theory does give you an excuse not to act, even though it might seem like you should. The message that is provided by the community is often cryptic phrases like enjoy the show, nothing can stop what is coming, or God wins. So in this way, believers are first scared by this terrifying notion that the world is being run by this horrifying force of evil, but also comforted by the notion that things will inevitably work themselves out. And in fact, because believers are confronting phantom foes that they can do nothing against, but also that they'll work themselves out in a single flashpoint of revelation, uh, a great awakening, they are absolved of any real work trying to improve the world that we find ourselves in, which is slow and painful and difficult and often requires sacrifice. And this is what I mean when I say that I view a lot of these conspiracy theories as wasted potential. People evidently have a profound sense that something is wrong with the world, and a mistrust of elites even if they can't articulate what it is. Rather than investigating real issues, though, it's all diverted into this fantasy, which is comforting even as it is distressing. Where it does motivate people to act, it can often be in in violent or destructive ways, and quite a lot of the time it motivates people not to act in conventional ways because everything is being controlled uh, through... I don't know, non-traditional channels, I guess you should say. So there's no point in conventional activism, uh, conventional discussions of these things with people. And it leads to a lot of wasted, dissipated um, energy. And unfortunately, I just think a lot of people are wasting their time on this. So in short, then, it might seem inexplicable that thousands of people at least appear to be drawn into this vague, delusional and bizarre conspiracy theory. But of course, we see examples of this kind of thinking and this kind of story throughout history, throughout the world. We talked about Munster. There is a great book, Fantasyland, by Kurt Anderson, which tries to deal with this stuff in a specifically US historical context, linking the threads of conspiratorial and paranoid thought through the generations and threading it into the fairly unique historical and cultural context of the US to explain why this is often a phenomenon that begins there 
and then gets exported to the rest of the world. Some of it actively draws on earlier narratives that are familiar to people, plucking out direct details from something like the Satanic Panic, protagonists and antagonists from the ongoing political drama in the US, which is of course itself sensationalised all the time, and more broadly drawing on this tendency for millennialist thought that is an aspect of the human psyche. Our attraction to lurid, dramatic narratives in which the bad guys are defeated, the heroes win, and a single moment of revelation saves the world. And, you know, this is something that I I talk about even in the context of uh, movies and books and TV shows that deal with even people's issues in their personal lives, where you do get that quick moment of fix, you do get that quick revelation. All that's required is for someone to realise that something is wrong and for a truth to be uncovered um, for things to change. And, of course, we know in reality that things seldom work that way. Quite often, injustice is uncovered and continues to take place. Quite often in people's personal lives, you know, you might realise that you have a problem with, I don't know, alcohol, gambling, um, spending too much time at work, um, not spending enough time with your family, any any number of personal problems you could realise that you have. The simple revelation that you have the problem does not fix the problem. The work of fixing the problem is can often be the work of a lifetime for many people. But that's not a good narrative, that's not a easy narrative to tell, and that's not a sort of pleasing dopamine hit that you get from... Uh, ah, this second of Revelation comes out and thereafter everything is fixed. And so you can sort of see why these millennialist narratives are even supported, I think, culturally, um, in a way, because they are simpler and they are more lurid and they are more attractive. And obviously something like this is a an incredible corruption of that tendency, but but it is part of the same zeitgeist. And of course, you know, The people involved in this conspiracy theory, they get a sense of community, they get to feel important, they get to feel smarter than others for having privileged knowledge that others don't have. I mean, this reminds me of anyone who's tried to communicate science online knows that there'll always be some crackpot who thinks that they know better than the entire scientific community and uh, they they enjoy the feeling of superiority over everyone else um, and having this privileged knowledge that no one else has been able to figure out. The people who subscribe to this conspiracy theory, they get explanations, a framework for interpreting a confusing and disturbing reality to erase any cognitive dissonance they might have, and they get reassurance that salvation is coming. I think as well as this, of course, we've talked about the truthiness idea before. One undeniable point is that people increasingly mistrust mainstream news sources. If you push back against a conspiracy theorist, they'll accuse you of being gullible or a sheep who believes whatever they're told. The irony, of course, is that they're generally ascribing to far more outlandish beliefs from far less reputable sources, which provide far less evidence for their extraordinary claims, but that kind of irony never seems to sink in. But, of course, it's true that the mainstream media has an agenda, often has bias. This doesn't actually have to be in the form, by the way, of a shadowy cabal of people meeting up and deciding how they're going to subvert democracy and run the world. It can just be lots of people acting in what they perceive to be their own self-interest. If the status quo is working well for you, you will act to defend it against perceived threats to that order. In most cases, I think that's a fair enough assumption. And you don't need a conspiracy for that to happen. But people's often justified mistrust of media narratives that they are presented with is part of that cognitive dissonance and it's weaponized by conspiracy theories. Of course, people talk about the social media platforms where everything can look like news and everything can resemble news. And again, you have this echo chamber of similar people talking about similar things that completely reinforce this so that it becomes mainstream to discuss these things because you're surrounded by other people with similar beliefs. And that's always helpful in allowing the propagation and the perpetuation of beliefs that are a long way outside the mainstream. And of course, we feel better as individuals when we can filter and sort the events of our lives into some kind of overarching narrative, uh, particularly if it's positive, particularly if it can explain away inconvenient truths, uh, particularly if it has a happy ending and fits with our preconceived biases. You know, maybe I failed here, but it was only a stepping stone on the road to success. This misfortune or setback actually helped me in the long run, that kind of thing. Similarly, we have a lot of people running around in the world today trying to rationalise why a massive pandemic has suddenly turned everything that we thought was normal upside down. 
It's no coincidence that these conspiracy theories are on the rise as people spend ages stuck indoors, unemployed and online, trying to make sense of the way the world has suddenly changed. Anti-vaccine conspiracy theories, theories that there's a secret cure for coronavirus like chloroquine that's being suppressed, theories that the pandemic was started intentionally, these are all fake narratives that have arisen to explain the events that we're seeing. QAnon has embraced many of these, and in the context of the pandemic, of course, this relates to one of the, the great conspiracy theories, which is surrounding the JFK assassination. And one of the reasons why people were so reluctant to believe the story of a single shooter that assassinated JFK was that it's actually a lot more comforting to believe that the world is governed by some logic, uh, by some understanding, um, by some forces that can be combated or, or, or pinned on. It's, it's much more comforting to believe that JFK was assassinated as part of a huge plot than by a random lone gunman. Because if you accept the lone gunman theory, then you accept a level of vulnerability and fragility to the order of things that is uncomfortable. The president can just be assassinated by a lone gunman. That doesn't make any sense narratively. It's not a very satisfying world. And yet, in many ways, that is what happened. The reality, you know, when it comes to the pandemic is we have a similar dynamic in place here where people want to believe that there is some greater significance beyond this. But the reality, as anyone who's listened to the Teotihuacan specials will tell you, is overwhelmingly likely that we are constantly confronted by an endless parade of existential risks, or at the very least catastrophic risks, which we have often failed to prepare for adequately when times were good. That's not very comforting, is it? There's no rhyme, reason, or overall narrative to be derived from that. No one is in control of it, although their negligence and lack of foresight may have made it worse. It's simply that, for the third time this century, a coronavirus crossed from animals into humans, only this time it was harder to contain and we did not succeed in doing so, and it's caused a global pandemic. On the side of the people who promote this stuff, the QAnon conspiracy theories, the vaccine conspiracy theories, whatever, they can get unbelievable levels of online engagement, attention, money in the form of donations or sales of books and merchandise, the whole thing is a massive grift for many of them, as there generally are for most conspiracy theories. And in return, all they have to do is sacrifice a bit of time and maybe a few friends by going down a grim and depressing rabbit hole. In, in many ways, it's easier to understand why people would promote this stuff rather than why they'd believe it. So what do we think is going to happen with this particular conspiracy theory? Again, history does give us some examples. We can think about the Millerites, for example who predicted an explicit date for the end of the world and the rapture on October 23rd, 1844. When this specific prediction didn't come to pass, the result was known by Millerites as the Great Disappointment, and the movement split between those who were totally disillusioned and quit the cult entirely, and those who continued to wait in some form or another, believing that even if they had been mistaken or deceived on some details, the basic core of the narrative remained true. I think it is quite likely that something like this does happen, whether it's after Trump loses the 2020 election, or after four more years, there will be some who never give up on the conspiracy theory, others who believe in that kind of truthiness sense that it was basically correct but some of the details were wrong, others who follow whatever it transforms into into the future. It's quite possible that it becomes some kind of religious or social movement and jettisons some of its more specific claims about Satanists and this kind of conspiratorial thinking. And of course, there will still be others who just quietly move on to the same next conspiracy with their own understanding of how things are going on. We have examples, of course, of earlier conspiracies, even in the days of the internet, where similar things have happened. There was the Nassara conspiracy theory, where people believed that a secret law had been enacted by Congress to make everyone wealthy and return to the gold standard. There was John Titer, an anonymous poster on message boards who claimed to be a time traveller from the future and posted cryptic clues as to what world events would transpire. El Congru. In the long run, then, the specifics of this particular conspiracy theory, or whatever you want to call it, may not be that important. I realise that that might sound ironic, given that I've just spent half an hour talking about it, but I think that it's easy to overemphasise how important this kind of thing is. For example, an Emerson research survey in August 2019 suggested that just 5% of people believed in it, as late as March this year, only a quarter of people had even heard of it, although that's likely to be much higher now. 
One interesting fact is that more Liberal Democrats have heard of this conspiracy theory than Republicans, which might suggest that there's more airtime of this of Democrats criticising it than Republicans ascribing to it. On the one hand, 5% of people is a very small minority. On the other hand, it's slightly disturbing that if this was borne out across the country, it would correspond to millions of people. But if you do compare that to conspiracy theories surrounding climate change, the JFK assassination or 9-11, all of them got to be far more mainstream, albeit that they're often less specific. There is a certain danger, of course, in giving this kind of thing the oxygen of publicity. But there are two particularly distressing things about this conspiracy theory which I think are worth bearing in mind before we dismiss it as another weird phenomenon, a quirk of human psychology that will come and then be the subject of documentaries in the future. I think the fundamental reason why it's disturbing to reflect on the fact that people might be harbouring a totally different reality from you is that it can make their behaviour unpredictable. One of the people I knew in real life who believed in conspiracy theories thought that they were in contact with someone who had a cure for cancer. That person, if they find they have symptoms, will probably put their faith and trust in this quack doctor rather than mainstream medicine. QAnon's central ideas are that there's some ongoing war against a cabal of evil people who are secretly running the country. Unlike some earlier conspiracy theories or quasi-religious movements like the Millerites, it deals with real characters in the earthly sphere. Believers in this conspiracy theory fantasise a lot about their hate figures being detained or executed at Guantanamo Bay, Fantasies of political violence, in other words. You have to question, then, whether elements of the group are going to be enticed into political violence if their anonymous prophet starts asking them to do it. After all, if you believe that these people are satanic child murderers, maybe it's morally justified to take violent action against them. Indeed, we've already seen attempted bombings by Caesar Sayoc of many of the hate figures involved. I don't know to what extent he personally ascribed to any of these theories, but it's the kind of thing that you might expect to see happening. As I was writing the script, Trump himself essentially endorsed the cult in a press conference. He said, when asked, he, he was asked whether he believed their story that he was fighting against Satanists and paedophiles. And his response was, well, these are people who love our country. And if I was fighting against them, isn't that a good thing? This has obviously helped to embolden the group, as has many of the tacit support from the mainstream Republican Party towards these people. And again, I would say, regardless of your political views, you would presumably accept that the presence of a large body of people who are disconnected from reality, extremely politically engaged, following the whims of an online and anonymous account, in the midst of very dangerous and volatile political times, in a country with a lot of guns, right before a contentious election where the result is likely to be disputed, is not exactly a recipe for peace and stability. Indeed, you can see that many of the people in this QAnon group are actually concerned that they are going to be inciting violence. They will warn about things like false flag attacks, the idea be here being that inevitably when some QAnon member or some fringe person goes on a killing spree or attempts to attack the people they've been told are the embodiment of evil, this will be portrayed as a setup by their enemies to discredit the movement, rather than an inevitable consequence of diving off the deep end of reality and indulging in paranoid fantasies of political violence. If the anonymous poster orchestrating all of this decided to tell people that they needed to commit acts of violence to stop evil from winning, or to accelerate the day of reckoning, would some followers heed the call? It's the kind of thing I really don't want to find out about in practice. And the second thing that's disturbing about this is the larger trends. Of course, algorithms sorting people into filter bubbles online, exposing them to endless hours of this type of content, gradually radicalising them. That's a big part of the problem, which we discussed recently in our episode on YouTube's algorithm. But so is the general, what I guess you might call, ontological trend. The way in which people decide what's real and what's not real, which here is clearly based much more on paranoia and emotion than any kind of rationality. An assessment of the facts that decides that some random, anonymous online poster is more trustworthy, not only than any kind of general consensus, but also the evidence of your eyes, ears, and logic. And so we return again to the start of the show, and the notion, the idea that there are people running around in the world who don't really share your sense of reality at all. You may assume that they do. But in fact, fundamental ideas and fundamental assumptions about the nature of how things work, about the narrative of how history is unfolding before us, about the significance of events in the world around us, and even assumptions about how you should come to these conclusions, what valid sources of information and interpretation are, are totally different. 
and if you believe there are lots of problems that we need to work together to solve collectively, how do you get around that kind of problem? Answers on a postcard. Thank you for listening to this extremely off-topic episode of the show that has, if nothing else, allowed me to get all this off my chest and on the record for the first time and for three weeks in the future when conspiracy theorists turn out to be totally correct about everything, at least I will be recorded as a dunce, as they will all hope that I will. So if you have any comments, questions, concerns, you want to hear more like this, less like this, I always want to do things that the audience is interested in and that they find interesting. So if I'm going off the deep end, people should tell me to rein it in and switch my focus. There's of course more I have to say about geopolitics that I try not to bring into the show because it's so much everywhere and that's not really what we're about. But the Twitter poll did give me permission to go off topic and so I've written this. But anyway, if you have any comments, questions or concerns about what you've heard, things you'd like to discuss points you'd like to make. Again, I'm always happy to turn these things into a bit of a dialogue and answer people's questions on future episodes of the show. And yeah, really discuss with you your own thoughts about this brand of thinking and the cognitive biases that are creeping into society and making changes happen. The best way to do that, of course, is to go to physicspodcast.com. There we have the contact form. That all goes through to my email. I read them all. I try to respond to pretty much all of them. If you are a conspiracy theorist and you think I'm an idiot, you can email me, but I might not reply to you. Um, You can get in touch with us on Twitter, PhysicsPod, Facebook page, Physical Attraction. Uh, There's the Science Podcast Facebook page, which if you're looking for more science podcasts, you can go there and you will find people putting up their new episodes every week and this sort of thing. It's it's a good community that's building there of a few hundred people, so that'd be quite a good place to go if you're interested. And of course, you can support the show if you like what you're hearing. We have Patreon, we have PayPal. I am, of course, running my own grift. It doesn't run a profit. It doesn't even cover the hosting costs, but that's okay. It's not about that. It is about me getting to empty the contents of my brain onto the internet, apparently. Uh, And I hope that some people are enjoying it. But of course, any feedback that you have, most of the way to go is through the website, physicspodcast.com, the About section. There's a list there of all the recent episodes that we've done. Um, There are specifics of to go right back into the archive, actually, and talk about things that we've done two or three years ago um, on the About Me page. You can find those there. And so if you're new to the show and have just heard a few episodes and want a guide to the archive, which is coming on to about 150, 160 episodes long now, that's the place to go with links to topics that you might find interesting. We'll be back next week with something totally different. Until then, then please take care. Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save money.